Power Hour. Coal. Oil. Natural gas. Power Hour, the show where today's top energy experts break down today's top energy issues. No sound bites, no talking points, no nonsense, no BS, no softball questions, no vagueness, just in-depth analysis and ruthless clarity. Here's your host, Alex Epstein. Welcome to Power Hour. I'm your host, Alex Epstein. This week, we are once again going to be talking about the idea of catastrophic global warming. Now, in some ways, this might be tiresome, but in other ways, this is an issue that's all over the place. That is something we're bombarded with on an almost daily basis and has a lot of complexity to it. It certainly deals with an unbelievably complex scientific issue. It deals with complex economic issues, and it deals with complex issues of how things like science are represented to us uh, by the media and how we should go about processing them. And this last issue is really the issue we're going to focus on today, understanding the education that we have, or or sometimes the lack of education we have, about the issues surrounding uh, catastrophic global warming. And joining us uh, is a commentator on this issue, uh, Joanne Nova, who's an Australian and has become very well known there and very, is very well known in certain circles, but you probably haven't heard of her. Uh, but she's written a couple of really interesting things, including something called the Skeptic's Handbook. And we're going to actually talk about the issue of skepticism and should, we, if you're, should you think of yourself as a skeptic of catastrophic global warming? Is there another better term? Uh, but in any case, she's got some really interesting ideas uh, in terms of how to think about the education that we get, and then also how to be an effective advocate. And in her book, or in her, uh, it's not it's not a full book, it's, it's a pamphlet, it's a very quick read, and it's available free online, The Skeptic's Handbook. She devotes a lot of attention to how to argue about this effectively, how to be a more effective activist. And I think that's, that's a really uh, important pursuit. So, on the other side, we'll have Joanne Nova talking about catastrophic global warming, and I hope you enjoy it. Power Hour, because what you don't know about energy can kill you. Here's Alex Epstein. Joining us on Power Hour from Australia is Joanne Nova. Joanne, welcome to Power Hour. Hi, Alex. How are you? I'm doing great. Now, um, you're quite well known in Australia, and you are definitely known among certain, uh, on certain uh, pro-catastrophic global warming uh, site somewhat infamously, but many of our our listeners might not be familiar with you. So, could you uh, tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do? I started off doing science communications, this strange esoteric thing where people are. It, I did a science degree and then spent years working in television and radio in Australia and explaining, presenting science, traveling around, popping lids off tins at schools and things around the country. And I believed that CO2 was a problem. And so coming from that background, it rather shocked me um, five years ago when someone asked me what evidence there was to support the idea. I rapidly found that I couldn't find any evidence to support the position that CO2 was causing disastrous changes to our climate. And um, then I could see that it was a huge value of my profession, the idea, you know, we're trained to explain science and to speak about science. And yet nobody was putting forward the other side of the story, the other evidence and that to me seemed so compelling. 
Um, and so I somehow strangely got into this. I would never have predicted I would have ended up writing about climate change and certainly not as a skeptic. So it's interesting that you, you talk about there being no evidence because to many people that would be a, a very shocking claim. Certainly you're, you're treated in the media to a seemingly, endle- seemingly endless parade of, of what is called uh, evidence. So how did, and, and you, something had convinced you before, it couldn't have been a complete appeal to authority. So I'm curious on a more specific level how that, how that epistemological transformation occurred, how you, what your encounter was with the state of evidence. <laughs> well, that's a very good question, Alex. Um, it, one Tuesday afternoon in February 2007, my husband, whose name is Dr. David Evans, who was working on and off for the last seven or eight years with the Australian Department of um, Climate Change or the Greenhouse Office here, he was doing carbon accounting, so looking at in details. I had pretty much stayed out of the climate debate because it looked all kind of settled and whatnot. And, uh, and a bit boring, to be honest. So I'd stayed right out of it. And the curious thing was he said to me, you know, there's no evidence. And I, like, just as you said then, I said, well, of course there is. You must be kidding. Of course there's evidence. And so I started reeling off the things that I'd learnt from reading New Scientist for 15 years and off I went, you know, the, the ice cores. And this was the moment for me when everything changed because you probably know the graph. Al Gore used it in his movie, the, the Vostok ice cores. Do you remember that one? Yeah, of course. And that startling connection between CO2 and temperature, and as Al Gore says, when CO2 is high, temperature is high. Right. And he phrased that so carefully because he must have known then, because it was 2007, well known amongst the climate science community, that CO2 was rising, say, 800 years after temperature. So how could it control temperature from 800 years in the future? Um, so there is a strong link between temperature and CO2, but it's backwards. It's not the link that people were wondering if it was back in the early 90s. And that link had turned around completely. And as someone who read things like New Scientist every week, my trust was really, well, I felt betrayed, I felt shocked at this point to discover that it was well known, not questioned anymore, that CO2 was rising long after temperature and falling even longer after temperature. And I just thought, well, why hadn't someone told me? And that in itself doesn't prove that CO2 has no effect. Scientifically, this is just an interesting point. But in terms of media coverage, to me, this was a huge red flag. And it was saying that the media was avoiding putting forward just a standard piece, one of the most important pieces of evidence. It was just, it was like a black box. It was keeping it hidden from us. And that's when I started to look right into it and started to hunt and search for the evidence, which I was sure must be there but couldn't find it. What it boils down to is we come back to climate models. So when they say we've got overwhelming evidence, we've got these overwhelming climate models, and what they don't have is evidence from instruments, things like thermometers, from weather balloons, from pollen, from ice cores, from observable evidence. And that is everything in science. And models are not, because models are essentially theoretical calculations on paper. And as any modeler knows, and I'm married to one, if you tweak the assumptions the right way in a complex model, you can pretty much get almost any answer you want. So I want to jump back again to, because I think it's your case is instructive because you were scientifically minded, had a scientific education, and as you said, you know, read a major scientific periodical, at least one, uh, every week, and yet 
you you know you would come to believe this thing that is is you know this theory of catastrophic global warming i mean it's not even a theory but this this claim of catastrophic global warming that you know fundamentally fails the evidence test and certainly qua model this is something that that fails the model test of actually having being able to make significant uh true predictions it it tries to make not even that important predictions and fails miserably probably worse than just a human being guessing could in terms of the you know the dramatic temperature rises that it's predicted in the past. So I'm, I'm curious what it says about how we're taught to think and how the scientific journals are that in effect on a weekly basis we're being asked to take causation on faith in this black box form. Mm. Um, well, that's just it. It's so unscientific. It's profoundly anti-science to say because the authorities say it's true, therefore it must be. And people would claim that was evidence. They put forward studies saying 97% of climate scientists believe that it's a problem. And they think that that's evidence. You know, someone's done a survey, we got results, it was a method. And that's not the point, though, because it's not evidence about the climate. It's evidence about the culture of climate scientists, or it's evidence about the opinions of climate scientists, but it's not evidence about the atmosphere. And this is where people were mixing up the use of the word evidence. So you're quite right to focus on it and, um, and to bring that forward and to pick me up for making bold statements like there is no evidence because for most people that would sound shocking. So um, to continue the story then, what happens next? So you have this, you have this realization. What, what, what do you decide to do with it? Well, in my naivety back then in 2007, I thought, wow, holy moly, when everyone else reads what I've read, this is all going to fall over in a few months. And so I thought there would be, you know, a little bit of a rush, but other things got in the way and we were busy doing things and whatnot. Um, by the end of 2007, I was lucky enough because David was invited to go to Bali with the UNFCCC. Now, no one had ever heard of me in the climate debate. And um, But I just tagged along, paid for my own ticket because I thought it would be so much fun, interesting to see what was going on. Um, went along to the Bali conference. There were, tw talk about junkets, 12,000 believers in Bali in December 2007 and there were 12 skeptics. So we were outnumbered a thousand to one, and it, you know it was just a classic who's who when I was there. David Evans and I were not very well known, but um, but David had written one article for the Australian, which had been quite influential, which was why he was asked to go up there. But we met Mark Morano, who runs Climate Depot, and we met Craig Rucker from CFACT, and we met, of course, the Lord Christopher Monckton, and it was just such a ball and such a great learning experience to watch all of them at work. And I came away from that with, in a sense, the idea of the sceptic handbook in my head because what was clear was that sceptics, we're all individuals and we're all arguing from different positions and some of the sceptics had good arguments and some of them had arguments which I think were probably not worth reinforcing and I wanted to help the sceptics sort out the arguments. So I really did write the sceptic handbook for sceptics and my idea was just to release it, which I did about six months later, to help sceptics focus on the arguments that I thought were the most useful and to help them find ways to phrase it to get the information out. And it just really took off from there in the middle of 2008 and uh, I didn't even know what a blog was when I started blogging. And it, it, I was really put on the map by um, an anti-sceptic blogger called Deltoid who uh, criticised me and uh, suddenly everybody, and when I replied to him and pointed out all the logical flaws and errors in his arguments and I had quite a lot of fun with that, then yes, my blog was suddenly put on the map. 
that that's that's great. Yeah, that's well, that's a lesson to bloggers out there of of one way uh, to become prominent, even when the opposition uh, doesn't want you to be at all. Um, Oh, well, just... yeah, so for me, I guess I spent 2007 and, and, and 2008 learning things about climate science, testing my knowledge behind the scenes because it's such a hot potato. But for anyone with any kind of reputation in science, communicational science pre presentation, you, you pretty much step right outside the fence. I've kind of become a bit of an exile in my own field because there are virtually no other trained or you know past experts in science presentation who are speaking out, except with the exception of Nigel Calder, who used to be an editor for New Scientist. We're talking several decades ago. And he has a great blog and he writes about it too. But apart from him, he has a brilliant way with words. There are not many who came, I guess, across the fence from who used to explain why we should worry about CO2. And I did several interviews on our Australian ABC, which is our um, like the equivalent of the BBC. And I did distributable science segments on it, and I, of course, talked about climate change and how we should be concerned back in the late 90s. So just, just biographically, when you're doing this, is this, are you turning this into a full-time job, or is this some, uh, is it, are you doing this on the side? kind of crazy it's sort of turned itself into a full-time a full-time job and except for a job meaning you know that would imply I was getting paid which I'm not <laughs> so it's really become an obsessive hobby and it, but it has taken over my life completely but that's the extraordinary effect of the internet that um, yes it's just just amazing the effect once you start blogging has this weird thing where emails start to come in 24 7 and comments and posts and pretty soon you start checking the computer all the time and I was getting replies like from physics professors in Norway at one o'clock in the morning and it, it, I fed on a feedback I suppose people writing to thank me for putting out the skeptics handbook and, and urging me on to do more and then the odd donation and the donations are in a big scheme of things it's just a paltry nothing compared to a normal career the kind of career I would get if I worked for one of our national bodies like the CSIRO so I mean the money barely covers the cost but it's so inspiring that people are voluntarily sending me money that it kind of counts for double or triple in terms of motivation if you know what I mean the fact that someone's taken the trouble to donate $100 to me I, I feel honored that they that they did that because it's so voluntary yeah, yeah, I would imagine. So you're well. Actually, let me ask this because I think a lot of listeners would be interested in this, and I'm interested in this. What advice would you have for new uh, new bloggers in terms of becoming a prominent and influential voice in the blogosphere? Well, the thing that I did really worked for me was spending that six to eight months really going over the evidence, getting the facts right, learning and putting together, I did cartoons, I got the key graphs together, I had my chart in the Skeptic's Handbook of Logic and Reasoning. I had done a fair bit of reading before I started blogging. So my aim when I started a blog was to make every post useful and for that first year of blogging, I, I often only put something up every two weeks or even every three weeks and all the blogging experts will tell you this is crazy because you need to have something up there every day in order to generate you know, people coming back to look. But my attitude was when people discovered my site, I wanted them to look back through the posts and think, gee, that was useful. Gee, that was useful. I like the way she did that. And I couldn't churn out that kind of stuff on a daily basis. So my aim instead was quality rather than quantity. 
And um, and I also got right into the comments, which takes so many hours once you start doing that. But in terms of a testing ground in this topic, the comments are brilliant. It's very hard to hold the wrong idea for long on a sceptical blog because someone will come in within an hour and knock you down if you make a mistake. So it's a brilliantly tough testing ground. And uh, and I guess I spent that first year just building up a repertoire of, of blog posts and comments and sorting myself out before I started blogging four or five times a week in late 2009 with Copenhagen. And then I could sustain the traffic and also, um, I guess I understood how things worked. So for new bloggers, I would say advice is, is counter to what the standard blogging advice is. Rather than blogging every day, focus on getting really good content up and so that when people do pop in, they can see that you've got something novel to say, something interesting, new and original. Yeah, that that sounds like great advice. So let's let's get then into the issue of the skeptics' handbook and and skepticism, which is an interesting philosophical and, and scientific term. So what what would you say is a is a skeptic in this context? Well, a skeptic, as I as I wrote on the front cover, this seems really important. Is a person indisposed to accept popularity or authority as proving the truth of opinions. Now, there are other definitions of sceptic, but to me, this really summed it up. And all scientists should be sceptical. Accepting anything on faith is profoundly unscientific. And we've really turned the opinion around when it comes to scepticism because people used to write to me in the first couple of years and say, Joe, you shouldn't call yourself a sceptic. It's got such a bad name. And the alarmists had really poisoned the word sceptic to the point where people were saying, call yourself a climate realist, don't use the word sceptic. But I, I kind of proudly, if I do say so myself, turned this back on them by publishing T-shirts and badges saying that I was a sceptical scientist. And, um, and I made badges for the other side, calling them unsceptical scientists and <laughs> offered them for free. Strangely, they didn't seem to wear them, but... You can see my point. Once we turn their advertising back on them and start calling them unskeptical scientists, it, it, the, the idea of not being a skeptic just becomes preposterous. If you're not a skeptic, what are you? Gullible. Well, but so I would, so I mean, the way I, I think of it is, is I'm skeptical or even more than that of the idea of catastrophic global warming because it, I think it's it's counter to the evidence and certainly on the side of catastrophe, it's counter to the evidence, which is that human life has gotten much, much better and continues to get better due to fossil fuels. So I, I could say, see that as, I mean, skepticism as, a, as an evaluation of a particular position, but as an overall philosophy, it seems problematic to say I'm, except, I mean, if you want to say I'm indisposed toward popularity, but it, 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 it seems to conflate the position you'd take with catastrophic global warming with the position you'd take to mass energy equivalence, which is a demonstrated thing. Um, sorry, Alex, sorry, run that one past me again. The oh, I'm just saying that, that, I mean, if you call yourself a skeptic in a global mm. sense, a skeptical scientist, what differentiates your view of catastrophic global warming and your view of E equals MC squared? Well, in all cases, I would say it would have to come back to the idea of observations, to be able to quote observations before you put forward a strong opinion. And, um, you know, I don't put out too many opinions on relativity. <laughs> I do. I accept the consensus on that one. But then I don't sit around telling people what food policy and money or discuss the science of that on the, on the blog site, if you know what I mean. I think it's quite all right to accept the consensus. 
but not if you're someone who is um, is saying, I want your money and I want you to spend that money on things that I ask for. And that's what we're getting from the people on the side who are demanding our money for renewable energy schemes and other things. And we're saying, well, give us a good reason to do that. And they're saying, well, because everybody says we should trust the experts. And to me, that's profoundly wrong. So, of course, normally trusting experts is a good idea. And from, for the most part, you won't go too far wrong by just saying, well, I'm going to stick with mainstream opinion on this and I'll just follow the crowd. But there are a few topics where that has been catastrophically wrong in the past in terms of scientific careers. And unfortunately, this is one of them. I, I really? I, I'm trying to think of a case where it would serve you well to when you're talking about a, a sort of cutting edge scientific question. So if you take the issue of, say, nutrition, uh, or if you look at historically the the views on the implications of evolution by natural selection, I mean, these are all things that have been, at least in America, been, I mean, with, with you know, evolution, you had misinterpretations at the point of justifying yeah. eugenics. With, with nutrition, you've had misinterpretations at the point of just fattening the entire population. Uh, I mean, in general, these mainstream, quote-unquote, opinions that try to impose themselves on us usually have something to hide, which is that they're wrong. Well, it is almost like a red flag when they try too hard. And and so I think we should all be wary when someone seems just overly too keen to, to put forward a position, um, especially one which requires us to change the way we eat or how much money we have. And so you're quite right to, to point that out. But in the sense of being a, a career scientist, it is still difficult to go against the mass, to go against the general flow of things. Government departments are set up to support mainstream decisions in science. And as I said, a lot of the time they're right. But every scientist who is a whistleblower or a revolutionary has the same difficult path in any topic because anyone who wants to stand up and say, well, you're all wrong, is immediately threatening lots of careers who've built their strength and their money, their, their reputation, on one theory. So it's always difficult in science to knock down a, a, a theory that everyone thinks is true. And science is no different to any other human endeavor in that sense. Right. I mean, I, th I think your, your initial point is really well taken about just this issue of authority versus evidence and, and you know, with your own, your own trajectory, realizing that there wasn't evidence. Anyone who, cl who tells the public like X is true is obligated to provide at least an outline of the evidence and real experts are more than happy to do that. Real experts are certainly not the type of people who just say, hey, Joanne, hey, Alex, accept this on faith and accept it as this incredibly useless generalization like global warming is real we need to do something they you know they want to explain look this is this is how the greenhouse effect works this is why it's a logarithmic mm. effect if they believe in feedback loops this is how they work and and that's precisely i think the differentiation is that we don't have to trust experts because real experts will give us explanations and then we and then they're more than eager to see competing experts try to refute them Exactly, and they would also be willing to debate, whereas this debate is marked by a lack of debate, by people who will not stand up and debate things with the sceptics. Now, if the sceptics are so completely wrong and uninformed and we're just, you know, mummy bloggers out there putting out opinions rather than being able to compete, then surely it would have been easy five years ago for, say, Al Gore to take on Christopher Monkton and say, well, look, let's be sensible. We'll go and we'll do a proper debate and everyone will see that I can answer all your questions. And instead he's run a mile and he just calls Christopher Monkton and a denier, like all of us, we're all called deniers. And that should have been a red flag, and I'm kind of disappointed that I didn't see that back before I realised it was true, because 
in any science debate, calling someone a denier is, I mean, it's just name calling and it's an ultimate insult. I mean, to um, to reduce the debate to just name calling is a red flag and I should have seen that a long time ago. I mean, if other people are proposing that we can control the weather, for goodness sake, it's preposterous to say that anyone who disagrees that we can control the weather is a denier. So... The, the whole debate should have been obvious to me. I'm kind of disappointed I didn't pick it up sooner. That it, it had the air of fakery and unscientific about it, unscientificness about it. But any time you hear someone quoting all of the science associations, or you know the National Association of Scientists, or this group, or that group of um, the physicists or the chemists are all agreeing with this, um, or quotations of numbers of scientists, you, you need to be sceptical because it's profoundly unscientific. Yeah, and they, as, as you are indicating, they, they don't do it about the really valid theories. Now, the American Physical Society is not making announcements about, hey, guess what? E equals MC squared is true. We all agree. The things that they feel compelled to express agreement about, which is really just a select, mostly politically appointed group, is these incredibly vague statements that say, hey, the globe has warmed in, on average in some way, and then they have some complete non-sequitur political conclusion, such as, in effect, we need to shut down industrial civilization, which they're not even qualified to have an opinion on. They don't even know anything about economics or energy or whatever. Um, but So any, any, any mass, anyone who says all scientists agree on X when it's a contested issue, it's almost always they're trying to impose a political conclusion. It's always that they're distorting it. Because science just doesn't, with a new contentious issue, you simply cannot have that that kind of unanimity because the issues are nuanced and uncertain, at least at the margins. Yes, and when, when critics raise points to say, well, you know, maybe humans can't control the weather, when they respond by saying, yes, but you've taken money from a such and such think tank, you're associated with people who might one day possibly have made money on oil, and, you know, comments like that and straight out ad hominem attacks, then you know they don't have an answer to the points that are raised by the, the sceptics. And, you know, I'm kind of sorry that I didn't see it earlier. I look back and think, wow, you know, why wasn't I taught logic and reasoning at university? Why didn't I recognize argument from authority as a false argument? Why didn't I spot the confounding evidence they keep putting forward? You know, they keep talking about Arctic ice melting. Well, maybe the Arctic ice is melting, but... Anything that caused global warming, including the sun, including changes in, in you know, orbital things, would also change the way the Arctic heats and cools. So it's completely, there's no cause and effect link there. It's a non sequitur to say the Arctic is melting, therefore CO2 is causing it. Yeah, exactly. Just as far as the, the oil funding goes, I find that one of the most ridiculous things because if I were to choose two people, one is funded by an oil company and the other is funded by government agencies that control his entire career and will withdraw all of his funding if he changes his view against Al Gore's view. I mean, obviously the government, if someone tells me they're funded by the government, that's a, the biggest red flag I can imagine. But anyway, we've, we've, we've gone through, um, I feel like we've, you've, you've apologized for your past many times or like, and, and, you know, brought out the education problems in our culture. And so now I want to jump to the section of your handbook, which is called the surgical strike. And I, I like this focus because it's really on how to, how to debate this effectively. And you have a lot of content points in the book, but, but this is the one that interests me most. So what, what prompted you to, to do this section? Um, it was the idea that sceptics were all arguing separate points 
and not necessarily giving the most effective answers to the debate. And this is the thing, it's like herding cats to get sceptics to agree on anything. And I mean, that's both our, our greatest strength and our greatest weakness because independent thinkers will do that. And, uh, it, and so I don't want to stop the independent thinking, but I wanted people to understand that it wasn't worth raising uh, some of the small points. And if someone did raise small points, you can get lost for hours in a science debate, chasing down rabbit holes. And ultimately, we need to keep bringing it back to the fact that no matter if glaciers are melting, if sea levels are rising, if Arctic seas, we need to point out every single time they talk about that, that that doesn't prove CO2 did it. If the sun was warming the planet, if aliens were shooting us with ray guns, all of those things would be a sign of a warming world, but they're not necessarily caused CO2. And we need to get back to the point of what causes the warming, because this is everything. And then we need to get back to the idea of numbers, how much warming is CO2 responsible for? And I mean, listeners may be interested to know, I do believe, I, I do think that the greenhouse effect is real and that CO2 will cause some warming. My quibble with the, the IPCC is over how much warming it will cause, which is due to the feedback loops. You mentioned briefly, so I can see you've come across this debate in some depth, Alex. Oh yeah, I mean this is this is well, this is something we repeatedly emphasize on the show that the greenhouse effect, and you have this in your handbook, is a logarithmic effect. So all things be equal, uh, each incremental unit of CO two is going to have less of a warming impact. And given that in the last hundred fifty years you haven't had that much warming in the scheme of things, it's not alarming. So what you then need, the idea, is, as you say here, that what you then need is some other mechanism that is is somehow initiated by CO two that is not in logarithmic and that's parabolic or that has this dramatic and and that you would have to prove somehow just like you can prove the greenhouse effect except while you can prove the greenhouse effect you can't prove the other things mm. yes it's those feedback loops which make such a big impact and to me they're very crucial in the climate models and we get warming of about one degree predicted by a doubling of CO2. But the rest of the catastrophic predictions above one degree, and they're within the range of sort of three to five degrees, most of them, they all come from the amplifications in the models. And most people don't know that. That's one of the things where we often, we get told it's just basic physics. And the idea that CO2 is a greenhouse gas is basic physics. But the numbers are not basic physics and the amplification that the models postulate, that's completely fake sale to call that basic physics because the amplification is based on guesses about what humidity and clouds will do and even the IPCC will admit we are not good at predicting what clouds will do and the humidity has, the results of that have gone completely against the IPCC's predictions. The humidity hasn't behaved the way they expected it to behave at all. Um, so I want to go to number two in your, your surgical strike, as you call it, um, ask questions. I really like this one. Can you elaborate on what it means to, to well, ask questions? Often, you know, skeptics and people from um, the libertarian or the conservative end of the spectrum often answer questions and they can't help themselves but trying to answer every question honestly, which is a blessing and a great thing. But the problem is this allows one side of the agenda be set by those who effectively keep putting skeptics on the defensive. They keep putting people who question the theory on the defensive by asking them questions, saying, well, you prove what's running the climate then, or what do you think is controlling the climate? And the real answer is, we don't need to predict the climate. We don't need to be able to control it or to explain exactly what's driving it. It's a difficult problem. 
we're not asking anyone for money. We're just simply, we've got the easy job in a way. We're just pointing out flaws in their theory. Um, but it keeps being turned around to us and we end up being defensive, trying to um, explain the universe and everything, when really it's these guys who are demanding money from each one of us in order to follow their project. They're the ones who need to answer questions. So we've got to recognise the tactic of them dodging a question by asking us one and people need to stop falling for that trick because it's, it's an easy rhetorical trick and instead make sure the pressure is always on the people who are demanding our money for them to come up with evidence. Yeah, and it reminds me of the issue in philosophy of, of the burden of proof or the onus of proof. And this is, I mean, if, if the idea is that a, an increase of a trace gas from 0.03% uh, of the atmosphere to 0.04% of the atmosphere is, you know, a dramatic, deadly, and unadaptable force in the world, that is to say the least, a very far-fetched idea on the face of it. I mean, if you just heard that idea, you'd think this is this seems extremely unlikely, and especially if you've studied the history of CO2 and temperature, that this would be a huge problem, seems bizarre. So it really is the burden of proof, and, and if someone just says, hey, I can, uh, I can fly an elephant to Mars, I don't I don't then respond by giving an elaborate explanation about how that's not the case. I just say, you know, what the <laughs> heck is your evidence for that? Yes. Yes, and let them explain. So, and yes, so this is the point. I think it's just one of those personality traits where, and as I said, it's, it's a strength and a weakness where we always feel compelled to answer every question as honestly and completely and full as we can. And it's a trap that we keep falling into where the, the debate really should be about them answering questions and, and not necessarily us. So it would be good for people to understand that, that rhetorical technique and it, we just need to keep putting the light back on them and keep it is the evidence. I put out a, a post in uh, January 2010 where I specifically went through what we needed to see as evidence that the models were right. And I don't need proof and I'm not looking for unreasonable um, expectations of, of what we need. I mean, I used to believe in the theory. But I put it forward very specifically and, you know, no one has come up with one paper in the 36 months since then which specifically addresses the point of the assumptions about feedbacks in the models on a medium to long-term basis. They just don't have observations that support the models on anything except a few months and nothing much longer than that. And we have evidence, we can name, we can reel off papers pointing to problems with the models over the longer term and how the models are seriously making mistakes about their predictions. So, yes, I'm, I'm still waiting for that mystery paper. And when someone finds it, I've told them to rush to the IPCC because they need it too. Wait, can you, can you elaborate on what, what the criteria are, do you think? Because, I mean, it's really important for any, mm. any intellectual endeavor to know what's going to constitute a good answer. Otherwise, it's a moving target. Exactly. Um, in that post, I discussed the evidence that we need to see, the, the single paper even. I mean, and one paper is always difficult because it really needs to be corroborated with others. And as I said, we can quote many papers which show the models are wrong. But no one can even name one paper of observations. And when they say observations, they need to say what instrument it was measured with. And they should be able to, when we ask an expert of climate change, they should be able to say, oh, yes, well, the weather balloons show blah, 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 or the satellites recording in the upper troposphere show X, Y, Z. And that's what we find quite difficult because if you pin them down on it, there is actually no hard observational evidence that shows that the models were right when they assumed that the world would get warmer due to a thickening of our humidity, a thickening of that wet part of the atmosphere called the troposphere. 
and that we would get uh, humidity levels rising at about the height where planes fly. That's kind of the way the atmosphere works. And um, if you think about it, it's really interesting. Most of the atmosphere is dry. That's the stratosphere. It's very dry air. All the water sinks down to this kind of bottom 10 kilometres thick. And that wet part of the atmosphere is where all the weather happens, the clouds, the lightning, the storms, the cyclones, uh, the rain, everything's coming out of that bottom 10 kilometres. Our planes fly just above that and or right on the verge of it up the top there. And uh, it's very important whether the humidity that rises off warmer oceans, and it will, humidity will come off a warmer ocean, will that humidity go all the way up to 10 kilometres or will it just go to one or two kilometres and form a cloud and rain out, which totally blows away their models. And there isn't evidence to say that that humidity is rising all the way to the top of the atmosphere. Now, it really matters, that height difference really matters because humidity that's uh, thicker and extra in the lower couple of kilometres doesn't make any difference to the amount of radiation coming off the planet. What matters is that humidity layer, that whether that's thickening up in the top of the, the atmosphere. I'm sorry if I'm getting too technical here, but to me this is a really crucial point that we need to see evidence of because so much of the warming is determined by the model's assumptions about humidity and the $2 trillion question really boils down to whether the modelers are right about humidity thickening that blanket of wet air around the planet or whether it doesn't, whether it just rains out from a lower altitude. So I think one thing, one thing I, I take from that whole issue is that 99.9% .9 of people uh, who talk about this just on a casual level don't even know what a troposphere is. So, yeah. So, but this is this is then I think the state of education and thinking where what opinion you hold is is really a kind of partisan or uh, it, it just becomes this partisan issue rather than saying look I have no understanding whatsoever of the climate and so if a media report tells me hey a bunch of scientists agree I still have no I, I don't even know what they're agreeing to I don't know what it means I don't know what we should do about it and that's not a popular thing to be able to say. I don't know, but it should be it should be the default. So part of it is, and, and so if someone's going to explain, you'd really need, hey, what's the atmosphere? That would be an important question. You know, what's the atmosphere? How does it work? What what other things cause warming? What was it really? You know, you know, we can't live when it's warm. Why is warming bad? Is warming bad? there's all these questions, and it's it's like this. And this is on the this is this really the the ability to answer these questions is beyond the ability of science at present so the idea of simplifying it is just the most bizarre thing that'd be like simplifying the ability to do um you know successful cold fusion and just say oh yeah well obviously i know that but people don't know anything and yet we're, we all have opinions well, this is one of the things I keep coming back to, and that information is our friend. It's the friend of good people, good, honest citizens, and the more information we can get out there, in terms of better quality, again, not quantity, because we're drowned in information at the moment on the internet and news sources and radio, and there's no shortage of information. What we need, there's a shortage of, of really clear information with stuff that cuts to the point. And this is where information is our friend and we will never shy away from putting out the graphs, the data, the, the, the papers that we, um, we dissect. So it's just kind of bizarre to call us deniers. We'll discuss any paper that they come up with. And information, um, especially as you mentioned with the troposphere, 
see how much this debate has been propagandised because we are carbon life forms and yet when uh, a friend of mine did a survey in the streets of 100 people asking them about their opinion on carbon, the effect of the propaganda was so strong that it, people had stopped recognising us as being made of carbon and when he asked them questions like, um, would you be worried if you discovered you had carbon in your diet? People answered, I think something like 44% said, yes, they'd feel better about their food if it had less carbon in it. Really? And, you know, it, it just turned science education at school into a complete mockery of, of science because the idea that you could take carbon out of food when it's predominantly made of carbon, indeed, our carbohydrates. Yeah, is, uh, it, has car it has everything but the animal. Carbohydrates. Your mm. fats, which are um, hydrocarbons, so it's... Exactly, and he asked them, he even asked people whether they would feel bad about having carbon in their bodies and would they like to reduce the amount of carbon pollution in their bodies and they said yes, something like 29% of people said yes. <laughs> what do you do, cut off an arm or a leg? Yeah, it's, it's, it's just, yeah, I think propaganda is, is the exact uh, term for it. So as far as uh, your own activities go and what, what you recommend for others, what do you what do you think we should do going forward? I mean, there, there are certainly some signs for optimism, but we, we still have an enormous amount of wealth destruction occurring in the form of so-called green energy in the form of restricting practical forms of energy. And, and there's certainly still a lot of advocacy in America and around the world for um, you know, massively more destruction. I mean, talking about banning 80, 95% of CO2 emissions. What do you think is the way forward for advocacy? Well, look, this is the tricky thing. There are so many vested interests in getting this off the ground. I mean, there was $257 billion invested in renewable, uh, in renewable industry last year, $257 billion worldwide. The carbon market globally turned over $176 billion last year. If they got a global carbon trading scheme, the estimates from Bart Chilton, who's head of the U.S. Commodities Futures Trading Commission, was that it would be a $2 trillion a year turnover. It would be the largest market. So all, all of this, we've got large financial institutions and bankers who stand to profit from being brokers of these trades, and you can't blame them for trying to get it organised. You've got government departments set up, and you've got groups within the UN, the entire IPCC. Their existence depends on carbon causing some kind of catastrophic warming. And if it doesn't, then, you know, there goes that funding. There'll still be money for research, but nowhere near as much and certainly not two-week junkets to Bali with 12,000 of your friends. So there's a whole lot of, of people and money resting on this, and it is hard work to fight that. And as, as a citizen in a free democracy, all I can say is I think we need to lift our game a bit we need to not just do a little bit of reading to find out what's going on and make up our own minds about which way we stand on this. But we need to write letters to our politicians. We need to write letters to our newspaper. It would be helpful, she says, speaking as a starving blogger, um, if there were funding to help support bloggers, it does make a difference and it does curtail my activity and others on the web. And I'd really like to see not just support for me, but I'm talking about a career path for people who want to spend their time researching and opposing big government because big government has plenty of funds forced from us through our tax payments to advertise and promote its own cause, but there isn't really much of an industry to keep big government at bay. And I'm not saying that everything government does is bad. I'm just saying government creep is like stealth. It will grow and grow and grow until something stops it. And what will stop it? The only thing that can really stop it is us, is, is thousands of determined citizens standing up and saying, no, thank you, and here's why. 
And so I think that's something on our side that people don't do because it's an effort. You know, it's an effort to write a letter. It's an effort to put comments in to blogs or to email those blogs to your friends, especially to your friends who don't really want to hear those kind of comments. There's a social price for it. And I guess I'm just asking everyone out there to do just a little bit more if they can. Somehow, you know, if you can't afford money, perhaps you can put in some time to help just by emailing your friends, talking about it at a barbecue informing yourself of sending a letter to a newspaper. All of those things do help. And we can get quite a lot of leverage by just getting to know other people with similar points of view and putting our opinions out there. It really does work like that. And even though there's so much money on the other side of the debate, it, it, it doesn't take much once we start to get organised and network and serious about stopping this ridiculous... Uh, ridiculous uh, funds and so, uh, that are paid towards things that just don't add up on any sense of the word. They're not economic, they're not scientific. There's no logical reason for us to be spending so much money putting solar cells on roofs that just don't work where the electricity costs 10 times as much as it could. You know, we could be funding leukaemia research instead. Wouldn't it be something to find the answer to childhood leukaemia? And which country would be richer? The one that, that pays more for Chinese solar panels on their roofs 10 years from now is going to have things that don't produce much electricity that cost a lot of money. They've created jobs in China. And the other country might have a solution to cancer research, to the flu, to something else, and they'll be selling that, painting the goods. One, one thought about the funding, because I, I tend to think that this... I mean. There, there is a lot of funding for sure, and it is, it is an influence. But I think it, it, it's easy to be overstated in the sense of, if you look at the, there's a lot of vested interests in being free to produce carbon-based fuels. Certainly, you know, the oil industry is very wealthy, uh, coal industry not as much as it used to be because of, of you know, government controls. But, you know, what, what you have is that one side is really morally confident, and the other side is usually hiding. And and even this issue we discussed before, with people are afraid to be associated with an oil company who produces the lifeblood of civilization, and yet they're proud to be associated with the government, which does everything it can to strangle uh, the development of civilization. Often, so you know, in my view, a lot of it is is changing the way we think about energy and having a much more positive view of the you know the people who fuel uh, civilization. I think I think to the extent that happens, they'll be more confident and willing to support uh, different people instead of viewing it as as something that's you know going to be deserving of scorn. But I think for on on your part, it's really good that. You, know, you have this confidence and and are not apologetic, and I think that's that's a posture that could be taken across the board, and that would be profitable to do. Well, and I must admit, though, I only get the confidence by discussing the science at the deepest level and putting it out there publicly and allowing anyone to comment on my site to criticise me for it, because that makes us so much stronger. And this is one of the points where the, the believers in the theory are so weak, and we've seen it in the few moments when there's been a chance to ask them questions or to have anything resembling a debate, that they collapse in a heap because they just haven't done it, they haven't practised it. They have so cut off themselves from debate that they don't have answers to the points that we raise, whereas we do because we've lived in this, this terribly brutal world of putting up public right. opinions and allowing anyone to knock them down and through competition we grow stronger. So I, I get that confidence only through doing this online and, and living in that real-time world where people will correct me within two hours if I make a mistake. Yeah, I think that's, that's, I mean, that's really admirable and, and to me personally, I, 
I, I go on and off about blogging, but it, it's it's a really good model to follow, I think, especially just engaging with the comments. Um, speaking of blogging, we're going to wrap up in a minute. So tell uh, tell listeners where they can find you, including where they can support you. <laughs> oh, thank you. Um, my my website is just joannova.com.au. And uh, if you Google for Joanne Nova or Joe Nova, you will find me and you'll find all the people who hate me and who've set up, you know, these smog attack pages and things like that. And you only know you've made it in the world of skepticism when you have yeah, an attack page. Yeah, I'm proud to have my desmog page. Yes, well, yeah, as they say, if you're scoring flat, it's only because you're over the target. So if we weren't getting hate mail put up about us, then I guess we'd feel like we were failures. We weren't getting anywhere, so... Um, <laughs> that's good but yes people who Google will find that too and so there is quite a bit of misinformation out there um, and I've responded to all the serious critics somewhere on my blog I have this wonderful page I'm quite proud of called my index which is in there's a link to it in the right hand column and so you can go into the index and you can find the people who've criticised me the, the, the critics who've tried to attack the Skeptics Handbook um, the people like D. Smog and Deltoid and uh, Skeptical Science you can see my responses through the index. You can find my response to them. And to me, that's been really useful. Um, I put the Skeptic Handbook out in 2008, and it took two years before Skeptical Science, which is actually an, an ambush site. It, it's very unskeptical science. It pretty much just ratifies the government opinion and keeps repeating how the government is right and consensus is correct. So it's highly unscientific, totally non-skeptical. It took them two years with the help of four or five professors to criticise finally the Skeptic's Handbook. It took me four days, unfunded and with no support from <laughs> professors, to dismantle everything they said and I link both to them and to my response in the left-hand column so that, you know, and I think that's really useful for people to see. Just to, I mean, this was the best they could come up with. It took them two years to attack the Skeptic's Handbook and I'm happy to link to their attack of it because I could respond so quickly and take out all the points they made. So I think that's really useful for people who are sitting on the fence to see that debate. I also did another debate on my site with Dr. Andrew Glickson and he ended up posting on my site and I'm quite happy for people who disagree with me, you know, if they send something reasonably in, you know, to put it up for discussion. And um, we ended up doing five parts of debate and it was a written debate and people had any length of time to reply. And I think that's a really useful form for a debate, unlike a debate where you stand in front of a crowd. <laughs> I think online, this form of debate where people could take a week to respond is really useful because it means you can put up your references, you can put forward cogent, well-thought-out arguments. We went through five rounds of debate over a month, and in the end, I said to him, you can put up a six if you want to reply to mine, and he said he would, and he never has because he's run out of answers. I, I pinned him down to the point where, unfortunately for him, he, he's a paleoclimatologist, but he doesn't understand the climate models. He just trusts that they're right. And, and I've exposed that in the debate online and exposed the exact questions and my problems with the models. He couldn't find any answers to it. Well, I think, I think above all, the thing that I, I take from your work is, is the methodology in terms, of, in terms of sort of correcting what you were fed and what we're all fed in terms of taking things on faith and really offering evidence, demanding evidence of others and just, you know, going all out in terms of allowing, allowing everyone to come in and see, see who wins out. I think that's, that's a really great model. So I hope that, that people uh, check out your site. It's joannova.com.au, right? 
Yes, and the Skeptics Handbook is free. There's a second one as well you can download, which um, they're just 16 to 20 pages and half the page is a graph or a cartoon, so they don't take long. They're fairly, you know, as easy as I could. I really worked hard to make them user-friendly. Um, and you can download them for free from the left-hand column. And, um, yes, the more people that understand, the more information we can get out, the stronger we become. So um, all for the spread of of ideas and discussion and um, and thank God for the internet. What would we do without the internet? So I've also become, in a sense, a free little speech fighter because they, I guess, the people who don't want information to be spread widely and freely are working to try and curtail the free speech on the internet, which really bothers me. Yeah, indeed. Well, Joe, it's great to, great to have you on the show, and I'm sure our listeners will check out your, your debates online, and I'll, I'll read some more of them myself. So thank you so much for coming on Power Hour. Well, thank you, Alex, for the chance to speak. And to people, I guess, I'm just thinking that given that government takes 25 to 30% of our money through the tax system, perhaps we should all take on a culture, an idea of donating, say, even half a percent, to to the causes that we think are useful in order to keep big government in its box, you know, at a, an appropriate balanced size and that what we really need in the long run is an industry that will always uh, put big government back in its box and trim that tax cut back to the most efficient, reasonable level. And, you know, because when we're losing 25 to 30% of the whole economy through the government, what stops that becoming 31%, 32%, just keeping on creeping up as it does? And the answer is us. And the only thing that will stop it growing is, is what we do. Indeed. All right. Thanks again for coming on, and we will keep in touch. Thanks, Alex. All right. Take care. All right. Thanks to Joanne Nova for coming on the show. Lots of different interesting issues raised. Uh, for me, the first one that, that really struck me, when, it's probably why we spent a lot of time on it, was the issue of education and how even someone like Joanne, who is very savvy uh, and bright and scientifically minded, had accepted hook, line, and sinker this idea which really didn't have evidence for it. Evidence in the sense of real cause and effect demonstration uh, that we are experiencing catastrophic uh, global warming. And, and I think it's a real testament to her that once she started investigating, she was willing to overcome a lot of different pressures and identify what she saw as the truth and then fight for what she saw as the truth. But it, it, it should really make us think about what do we really know? What, what do we know and what don't we know? Because there are just so many claims to knowledge in our education and our lives, and often we don't have the basic evidence or anything close to it to have a conclusion. And it's much better to say, I don't know, I don't understand how this works, or I don't understand these aspects of it, than to pretend that we know or to feel like we have to have an answer to everything now. Part of the reason this show exists is because the issues surrounding energy and environment are very, you know, very complex and very difficult. And I, I, I certainly am no universal expert on all of them. No one is. But by bringing on experts and by asking them questions and by always asking them for evidence, I think we can dramatically build up uh, our own knowledge. Now, the other thing I found really interesting 
or even inspiring was just how Joanne had become a major blogger from from just complete uh, obscurity. And the thing that she, she mentioned, which I've heard other successful bloggers say, is just this issue of really engaging with readers and really engaging with comments. There's a, a very famous uh, economics blogger, Scott Subner, who has become a sensation and really has, I think, influenced Fed policy. Uh, and one, at least as Eric Dennis tells me, one distinctive aspect of his blog and building it up was just engaging with everyone. And I think, although that can seem tiresome, what it also can show is that that you're really looking for the answers and that you really you're really developing an answer for everything and taking a really, really robust position. And then over time, people want to come and, and challenge you and they want to be in this forum where there's really interesting things. Now, I'm sure there's a lot of nuances to how to prevent flame wars, how to word your post, that kind of thing. But it is a really, uh, it's a really interesting example. And as CIP gets more into blogging in the future, uh, as we have the bandwidth to do more of it, I think that'll be really good. So if we ever have a, I, I fantasized about having a blog called The Human Environment, which really looks at all environmental issues from a, from a human pers perspective instead of the non-human perspective that often predominates. Uh, I think it would be really great to have a lot of the leading people from the other side feel compelled to comment and then to really hash it out so that we can see which view is best. And as Joanne mentioned, there are real benefits of this to, as against, say, the kind of debate I often do, which is on stage, which attracts attention, and, and, and you get a lot of good stuff, and it's, I think it's very valuable. But it does have the you know the disadvantage of you don't have as much time to think through a response. It's not as precise. It's harder for people to take in stuff uh, in that moment. So it's it's a really it's a really interesting and valuable medium. And and doing this interview motivates me to get CIP more involved in that. And, and maybe it'll motivate you uh, to get more involved as well, whether as a blogger uh, or a commenter. And if you're a commenter definitely use CIP stuff, industrialprogress.net. We've got a ton of stuff, and I think that's all of that will hold up really, really well in a comments section. All right, that is it for this week. Thanks again to Joanne for coming on the program. As always, if you need to contact me, questions, comments, love mail, hate mail, email me at alex at industrialprogress.net next week. We'll be back. Another great show. Another great guest. Until then, I'm Alex Epstein. This has been Power Hour. Power Hour. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of energy. Power Hour. The antidote to shallow thinking about energy issues.